Hello, and welcome to Asia in Depth. I'm Michelle Florcruz. Have you ever walked through a museum and wondered where the artwork and artifacts on display come from? Curators usually source artwork from museums, auction houses, and dealers, but often what you see are pieces loaned by individuals from their personal collections. Today, we're speaking to one of the most prominent individual collectors of Asian art, John C. Weber. For Weber, his fondness for collecting started at an early age with baseball cards. But when he was a pre-med student at Colgate University, he enrolled in some art history classes and he often visited a small museum on campus. Weber was hooked. He got his first taste of art collecting as a young man when he bought more than a dozen Rembrandt etchings. He eventually turned his focus to traditional Asian art. Weber had a pivotal role in building the impressive collection of ancient Chinese art at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. In the late 90s, his eye turned to Japanese art, and he began to amass what is today considered by many to be one of the finest collections outside of Japan. Many of Weber's pieces are at the center of the new Asia Society Museum exhibition, The Art of Impermanence, on view now through April 26 at Asia Society New York. The exhibition features more than 60 masterpieces of calligraphy, painting, sculpture, and textiles drawn from Weber's personal collection and Asia Society's Mr. and Mrs. John D. Rockefeller third collection. In this episode, Adriana Prozer, the John H. Foster Senior Curator for Traditional Asian Art at Asia Society Museum, sits down with Weber to discuss his life as a collector and the people and experiences that shaped his prolific collection. John, one of the fascinating things about John D. Rockefeller III uh, as a collector is kind of looking back at his his upbringing and the fact that both of his parents were collectors and that he grew up with objects all around him um, well before he himself became a collector. I was wondering about about your past and the way you grew up and and how um, that may or may not relate to the collector that you've become. I think collecting is sort of instinctual to some degree. Um, You sort of start out with, in my case, uh, baseball cards. And then when I was a young adult, I started to buy some Rembrandt etchings uh, at that point, they were uh, reasonably priced, so a young man could could, could buy them uh, because there were multiple copies and uh, produced by Rembrandt in his lifetime. So uh, my parents were not collectors, um, and uh, we had a, a well-decorated home, but I don't think they thought of them as, as collecting. There's a big difference between decorating and collecting. You know, a decorator buys things because it has a a place, it's the right color, it's the right shape, and uh, so forth. And a collector instinctively buys things and puts it in the closet. So when when you were growing up, then um, did were your parents museum grower, goers? Did you or you were mainly going to baseball games, or did you enjoy cultural outings as well, or was that something that developed as you matured? I grew up in uh, Cold Spring Harbor in uh, uh, Huntington area on Long Island, and that was was we didn't come into the city very often. There was a local uh, Heckscher Historical Museum, but that was not an art museum. 
I don't think it was until I, uh, so I went to college that I got really sort of plugged into, uh, you know, uh, what a what an exhibition was. And I was at Colgate University, and uh, you know that they have an art museum, and it's nice enough, but it's not a not on the standard of you know Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Did did you? Um did you take any art history classes when you were an undergraduate? Yeah, as a matter of, <laughs> matter of fact, I almost got myself into trouble because of it. I I was a pre-med student, which means, you know, uh, chemistry, physics, biology courses. But in addition to that, whatever electives I had were very much on the humanity side. And uh, I took a lot of uh, art history courses. And uh, when I was uh, applying to, to graduate school, uh, one of the people interviewing me uh, said, I see you're taking a lot of art history. Uh, we don't have students like that here. Uh, and then I just said very simply, some, you know, I guess self-confident, said, well, then this is not the place for me. And so will you excuse me? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about as you as you started to to collect um, when you started to collect those Rembrandt's uh, sketches when you started to collect art. Did you did you have somebody in mind as a role model? Did you have a sense of how you should go about doing that, or was that also something that developed as you you started to collect more and more? I think the uh, the Rembrandt etchings, uh, which I have maybe twenty of, are I, I asked the advice of a of a dealer, and uh, and that was all. But when I started to collect uh, Japanese art, my role model was Mary Burke, okay, who was a good friend, lived in the same building that I do. We got together often for lunch and would sort of sh show off what we had. And uh, of course, her, her collection uh, was much more extensive. I wish I had met her earlier in my life because towards the, end, the later years, uh, you know, she wasn't as active. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was really one of the. She, she, she was a great, great American collector of, of Japanese art and um, really, really lived with her art uh, all around her and also mm -hmm. um, was very generous in terms of lending work and um, encouraging students. Uh, and, um, and I've noticed that, that these are also things that that interest you um, with your collection. Why don't you talk a little bit more, more about that? Because it it also interests me. Um, you know, thinking about about the Rockefellers, um, because they uh, when when they decided they were going to collect Asian art, they they really uh, uh, honed in on the fact that they wanted to collect in a particular sort of way and really build a. Uh, a collection of extremely strong material that was going to be representative of a, a whole range of different Asian 
cultures, and um, they were thinking of it not just as a collection for themselves, but also as a collection that uh, they wanted to to share with other Americans to help educate other Americans about about Asia and the um, and the strength of um, Asian culture and the breadth of uh, and ancientness of Asian culture. What has your your thinking been uh, around your collection? Are these issues that that you've been thinking about as you as you build the collection? The uh, the first group of uh, things that I bought were ancient Chinese things, and that was uh, that collection has been given to the Metropolitan Museum and that's there at the Weber Galleries of Ancient Chinese Things. I think, I mean, I had a day job at New York Hospital in Cornell Medical School. I think that anybody who wants to be serious about the collection has to be well advised by somebody who's really a professional, but also somebody who allows the collector to have their their head without having them too clo clo closely on a bit, okay? And I, th I see that the same thing really was the way um, the Rockefellers and Sherman Lee worked, okay? I've read some, a book by, that was about Sherman and his relationship with the Rockefellers. Uh, the, uh, Collecting um, is not just buying a few things to, for decoration. It's it really, uh, to some degree, should have some focus. And when I was doing the ancient Chinese galleries at the Met, James Watt was the person who advised us. When it became apparent that it was going to be a historic opportunity to collect Japanese art because of the the economic situation in Japan that um, I needed to be advised, and that's where Julia Meach came in. Um, and she's has been a wonderful uh, consultant and uh, advisor and friend. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know the details of the relationship that Sherman and uh, the Rockefellers had, but I noticed that the, the Rockefellers were were buying Asian art before they brought Sherman on board, and uh, and I think you know the Sherman was still in Cleveland, mm -hmm. and so there was always a little bit of you know does Cleveland get this or does the Rockefellers right. get this, uh, but they worked that out. And maybe it was as simple as flipping a coin, right? But uh, right. So that that actually um, so Sherman Lee, in fact, the Rockefellers were seriously collecting for about a decade before they decided they they really needed needed an, an expert advisor who was really kind of uh, dedicated to working with them, and that's um, that's when they brought on Sherman Lee to work with them, and then they, a very intense period of collecting followed and of honing, honing their collection. Um, and and it, and actually, the 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 story and and it, it is fact that uh, they had a they had an agreement Sherman Lee and John D Rockefeller the third that 
if the two of them saw a piece of art that they both wanted at the same time, um, then they would flip a coin to see who would get that piece of mm -hmm. art. Other, other than that, it was first come, first serve. That was, that was the deal. That was the way that they worked. But um, as you say, I really think that, that, the, um, that the personalities of the collectors, the collector, um, or the collectors, I should say, come through in, that, in their group of objects. They talk about um, very much about wanting to choose pieces of art that um, stirred and lifted them, you know, that there was some kind of an emotional um, connection with as well as an aesthetic connection with. Yeah, I think the, uh, I, I was advised by the director of the Tokyo National Museum, who Julia had known, Julia Meach had known for for many years. And I asked him when I first started uh, if he had any advice for a, a new collector. I didn't say a young collector because I was <laughs> fairly mature. Um, and he said, yes, don't buy anything that you could walk past without stopping, okay? So I think that's always the first thing, is what kind of visual and uh, to some degree emotional response do you have to something? Now that's not sufficient. What you want to know beyond that, because if, if that doesn't happen, uh, you know, it doesn't. The process doesn't even start. But beyond that, you want to know a lot about the context of that object. Okay, where was it produced? When was it produced? Who was it produced for? And that varies over time. Um, and uh, especially in uh, uh, in my knowledge of, of Japanese art. Uh, the little knowledge I have is that uh, the patrons changed over time. Okay, uh, the earlier Jomon were basically hunter-gatherers, and they were just wandering around. They they were producing things that they could use. But as you go on, and then Buddhism came, and the written language came to Japan, uh, you started to have the uh, the church uh, was the major purchase, and eventually, the uh, the aristocracy was uh, the the uh, people who were paying for the art to be produced, and eventually the merchant class. And so, it's if you're going to talk about impermanence, one of the things is that's impermanent is who's commissioning artwork, okay, and that makes a big difference. Uh, in terms of what gets produced and even the style that things are produced because the certainly the merchants uh, were, uh, were buying things that were sort of had a stronger decorative uh, part. Mm -hmm. Certainly by the Edo period I think of Japanese art as having a, a larger uh, decorative element and I think that's one reason why it appeals to Westerners because of the uh, the, the decorative quality of that and you know some of my early pieces um, I think uh, have a 
sort of a, a visual impact, but they they're not. I, I think most people wouldn't think of them as being uh, decorative, uh, but they're. I, I think of them as being fascinated. We're taking a short break to tell you about the Asia Society Triennial, which opens on June 5th in New York City. More than 40 artists and collectives from 19 countries have been selected to participate in the first citywide festival celebrating contemporary art from Asia. Working across a variety of disciplines and representing countries from across Asia and the Asian diaspora, this dynamic group of artists brings together a diverse range of works and viewpoints. The featured exhibition, titled We Do Not Dream Alone, will be on view at Asia Society Museum and multiple locations throughout New York City. Check out the full list of artists and venue partners coming together at asiasociety.org triennial. Now, back to John Weber and Adriana Prozer. Do you have a sense of what it is that stops you in your tracks? Oh, that's a real... <laughs> That's almost impossible to define. Um, I think uh, it's uh, it somehow it speaks to you, uh, and uh, you uh, you get the message from it. Uh, and uh, so, what what has most recently stopped you in your tracks? Um, we we. Uh, uh, Julia Meach, Dr. Meach, I call it different things at <laughs> different times. Uh, we, we, we go to Japan once a year and uh, we visit dealers and we visit exhibitions. And if we go to an exhibition and we see something that really interests us and it says private collection. Private collection is a euphemism for it's owned by a dealer. And then you track that down. And so the thing that really stopped us in, in our tracks was uh, the, the recent sculpture that we bought, and that's in this exhibition, uh, because it, 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 was, it was in the middle of a room at sort of a, so you could see it from a distance. And, uh, you know, it was just, we just didn't go any further. <laughs> so this is a very powerful looking um, deity, uh, wrathful deity, Fudo Myo. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's standing on waves. Uh, yeah, it is. And it is a whole story that's probably uh, made up about uh, how that subject came about. Um, and, um, it's um, what the waves, why he's on waves, and it was a story about a, a Japanese scholar coming from uh, from from China, um, and uh, they got caught in a storm, and so um, they they prayed to uh, to the sculpture, and uh, the waves were cut, mm -hmm. and. Uh, there, and they were saved. Mm -hmm. So that's this. That's where it comes from. But every time I uh, certainly, if if I buy something, the the real fun, one of the great fun things, uh, is to is that research. And now with you know, you can Google Google and get almost anything you want. And uh, plus, you know, you have access 
access to uh, expertise. Uh, Julia Meach is very good about that because, she, first of all, she's extremely knowledgeable, but whatever she no doesn't know, she's intellectually honest, and but she knows who does know. Mm -hmm. She knows where to turn for whatever information that you want. So uh, I get, you know, sort of like a schoolboy, I get reading assignments. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that that's a big part of it. And, and the other part of it is not only sort of having things in the, in the boxes or uh, but it's it's sharing them with other people and seeing what kind of reaction it elicits from from people and that could be exhibitions it can be visitors we get visitors uh, often when mary burke was uh living in in my building uh she had visitors often and in those days i got relatively few now that she's passed on um you know people who go to the met come and visit me because uh, geographically i live essentially across the street across so the you're ta you're talking about scholars and students and yeah. uh, yes. museum professionals but i you know i say now i'm the new mary burke okay <laughs> uh because you know that i get the visitors that she would have gotten because her collection is dispersed to Minneapolis and the Metropolitan Museum so uh, and you know I've noticed uh, that you um, been uh, in in particular I think I've noticed that you you're very curious about um, the technology involved in the production of of the pieces that that you own and that um, that that you you lend and display, and often you you ask for the assistance of conservators to to study um, the materials that that the artists have used to create those those objects. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I would assume that perhaps because of your background uh, in medicine and, and because you're trained in, in, in some of the sciences, that, that that may be part of what sparks your interest, do you think? Um, I, uh, I come from a science background with sort of, you know, art history as a sort of corollary uh, in my education. Um, I've been fortunate to develop a very good relationship with Marco Leone, who's the chairman of the scientific analysis. And so I, I enjoy bringing things over. Uh, it can be as simple as, is this transparent uh, reliquary? Is it glass or is it rock crystal? Mm -hmm. Okay. They can answer that question in two minutes, okay, by, because they have the <clears throat> they have the, inf the instrumentation to do that uh, and quite frankly they enjoy doing that also and so that their department has become very good friends I'm on their uh, visiting committee and uh, but because I, I sort of bridge uh, the uh, the science side 
and the and the art side, I think I'm also helpful to them with the rest of their visiting committee because I can sort of uh, help to uh, translate that. But they're they're very Marco's extremely good communicator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me tell tell me a little bit about about Asia and your your background in relation to Asia is that has that all been through the art or um, or is that something that you've also developed alongside of the art I was fortunate that when I was at Columbia uh, I for a year and a half I lived in a place called uh, International House mm-hmm as it would turn out, this international house was formed, uh, was sponsored and formed by the Rockefellers. And there are three of them. There's one in New York, which is where I stay. And there's one at Berkeley and there's one in the international house in, uh, in Tokyo, where I just stay when, when I go to Tokyo. And so there's, you know, there's kind of a nice little linkage there. Yeah. But when I was in an international house, one of the people that uh, I became very friendly with was uh, uh, an American student who was getting a PhD in uh, Chinese literature. And so, you know, as people do, they talk about what they're interested in and uh, for, you know, at, at dinner and uh, weekends and so forth. And so I think that was sort of the initial, but that was a time when uh, collecting was it impossible during the Korean War uh, because there was an embargo on on, on Chinese material, mm -hmm. uh, and so my my first interest really was uh, in Asia was uh, was China, mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, as it turned out that. Uh, the, the Met really had a big influence on that because they wanted somebody to uh, re redo their uh, their Chinese ancient Chinese galleries and uh, sort of fill out their their Chinese collection, and that happened because this, uh, Mr. Sackle had left to go to Washington, and that's now the Free of Sackle. But they they had thought they. Uh, his collection would come to to the museum, so uh, and that was a great experience. And I think, you know, but that was specifically not a private collection or a personal collection. It was a right from the beginning. It was a museum collection. Right. Right. Tell me a little bit uh, because because you you have served a number of places. Uh, um, on as on on committees and on boards, um, you've also have been involved with Asia Society in one way or another for for quite a long time, um, and you know, tell tell me a little bit about about Asia Society, your relationship with Asia Society, and um, and the role that it has played uh, in in your life as a New Yorker. I think it be, became known that uh, in New York that I uh, had an interest in in, in Asia and Andy Pekarik, 
uh, who had been a uh, an advisor, uh, worked for Mary Burke, and then came uh, to uh, to the Asia Society for the uh, uh, be a curator for the uh, collection here, and so he he said, "Would you be interested in getting?" more involved and I said well what does that mean and he said well would you like to go on the board of and I said okay and uh, it comes with certain commitments uh, and so I was on the board for a number of years and then when I started working on the uh, collection for the Met I, I had to focus on that so I rotated off the board but then I was asked to come on to uh, the Asia Society's Gallery uh, Advisory Committee, and uh, that's really something I look forward to every year, and uh, because I always learn something, and there's the other people there are, are you know, have become friends, and that's a good experience, and uh, so uh, yeah, I've. I'm, I've been focused on the Asia Society, and then when Adriana asked me if I would be interested in doing impermanence, uh, as it turned out, that uh, I said, "Yeah, that sounds like it'd be real, really good." So uh, it's it's really the first first uh, exhibition I've had in New York, which is mostly my my material, and then also. Uh, the Rockefeller collection, and uh, it's uh, so it, it's really special. I mean, having a, an exhibition in Berlin or Boston or Minneapolis or San Francisco and the Miho in Japan, that's great. But most of your friends and neighbors and family don't necessarily get the same sense of participation as if it's in your hometown. Well, John, it's been um, it's been just. Uh, a great experience working on the art of impermanence with you, working on the beautiful catalog we've produced together for it, and um, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me today. Well, I, I enjoy the opportunity, and it does mean that uh, people will have, all over the world, will have access to my words of wisdom. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Asia In-Depth. You can listen to other episodes of the Asia In-Depth podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. I'm Michelle Fleur Cruz. See you next time. <laughs>